Hey everyone, this is Josh Itzo, author of The Fiduciary Formula, and you're listening to The Fiduciary You Podcast, where I share the latest information on corporate retirement plan trends, ideas, and best practices. On the show, I feature industry experts across multiple disciplines to get their unique perspectives and actionable insights about what it takes to navigate the complexities of ERISA and provide a great retirement plan for employees in a rapidly changing world. If you're a retirement plan decision maker at your company or a retirement industry professional, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the second episode of the Fiduciary You podcast. My guest today is Aaron Schum, founder and CEO of Vestwell, a digital record-keeping platform that leverages modern technologies to bring a low-cost, easy-to-use retirement platform to the large and underserved small and medium-sized plan market. Aaron has over 15 years of experience in fintech, finserve, and wealth management for companies like Northern Trust, Citigroup, and Fiserv. In 2014, he sold Folio Dynamics, which was a company he co-founded that provided technology to help advisors create and manage model portfolios. He founded Vestwell in 2016 to modernize the way 401k plans are offered, partly in response to the challenges he faced when trying to set up and manage a 401k plan for his employees at Folio Dynamics. Vestwell has attracted significant amounts of capital and interest, primarily from the financial services industry, raising over $30 million from companies like Goldman Sachs, F-Prime, Point72 Ventures, Nationwide, Allianz, BNY Mellon, and Franklin Templeton. On today's episode, Aaron and I talk about how technology is reshaping the record-keeping industry. We discuss how most modern record-keeping platforms are built on top of legacy technology systems that in many cases are 30 to 40 years old, which limits flexibility and access to data, can create errors and inefficiencies, and ultimately drives up costs. We talk about how Vestwell leverages modern technologies to avoid many of these issues by automating processes like payroll integration, loan processing, notice delivery, and identifying errors in real time, especially when integrating payroll data. We discuss how and why Vestwell, after originally building a modern interface on top of a large legacy record-keeping system, launched Vestwell 2.0 in January 2020, which replaced this legacy record-keeping system and built their own system from the ground up. And we also talk about cybersecurity and what steps Vestwell takes to protect client and employee data. And be sure to listen to the end where Aaron shares his thoughts on where the retirement industry is headed over the next five to 10 years and the role of technology, as well as his single best piece of advice for making ERISA fiduciary smarter. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Fiduciary You podcast with Aaron Schum from Vestwell. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for being on the Fiduciary You podcast. The whole purpose of this podcast is to make ERISA fiduciary smarter, and I'm really excited about you being a guest and can't wait to hear your insights and your perspectives and, and hear all about what Vestwell is doing. Welcome. So thanks for being on. Yeah, thank you. Happy to be here. Really excited to to have the conversation. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I think it's going to be a far-reaching conversation, probably talking about a lot of different topics, and I think you're going to have great insights about that. So, you know, for listeners who may not know who Vestwell is, why don't you give just a quick little kind of uh, intro about who you guys are and and, and what you do and really kind of the vision you have for, for the company? Yeah, sure. So, so we found Vestwell four years ago. So we're effectively, think of us as a digital record keeper, open architecture, technology, and, uh, and services if needed. Um, but, but really, we're working with financial uh, institutions, advisors, banks, broker-dealers, RIAs, uh, asset managers, insurance companies, payroll companies, to uh, really to equip them to power 
the retirement plan business, uh, workplace initiatives at a scale and, and, and a construct that really hasn't been set up to date. I'm just trying to bring everything to the modern era. You know, it's a, it's a 40 plus year old industry that it's, it's time for a, for a revamp as to how it works, but, but staying true to the core is, and trying to help solve the, the retirement needs across the country. Okay, that's great. And you guys are taking some really unique approaches and we'll, we'll certainly get into that. It is a bit of an antiquated model, especially on the record keeping side and, and just from a technology standpoint. So how did you come up with the idea for Vestwell? You, you have, a, a, I think, a long background in technology. Um, you had a, a prior company that you co-founded, I think, was it Folio Dynamics? Do, do I have that yes. right? Um, yeah. that, that really focused more on kind of the retail or private wealth side of the business. And ultimately, you guys sold that. You decided to get into the the record-keeping business in the retirement industry. How did that come about? <laughs> no idea. And do you no, regret, do you regret, do you regret your decision in any way, shape or form? I don't, I don't, I know. I, I've, I've lost a lot of sleep, but I, I don't regret the decision. So uh, long story short, so, so I started in the ERISA side, fell into the tech world, primarily in the private wealth side of the business. As you mentioned, co-founded Folio Dynamics. I was, I was a product person, my trade, product development, designing things, thinking through solutions as to how we could deploy platforms to scale financial services. So I have always worked through the lens of financial advisors, right? And equipping advisors to engage with their clients. So back in 2010, we were offering our first, our own retirement plan to the Fuller Dynamics employees, right? So we're a few years into the business, had about 30 employees and our employees wanted 401k. So we're like, all right, well, let's do this. So we went through the process. I think one of the sales guys he had a buddy who was a financial advisor from college, came in, gave us a plan, and we're going through that setup process, right, of design and implementation and fund selection. And it was it was so challenging, right? And, and I'm not a financial expert by any means, right? But, but I know more than, than probably the average person out across the country. And I was like, this shouldn't be this hard. And so kind of through my product hat, I was like, we should design a platform to build the retirement side of the business and married into wealth, right? So you, you, you're, you're working with someone from the, the, their first workplace touch point all the way through, you know, any stage of their life. And that's where it spawned the idea. So I was going to try to build this at, at, at Fully Dynamics, actually, before we, we sold the business, but our investors want to stay focused on wealth. So fast forward, we sold that business. It's now owned by Investnet. And I kind of worked out a deal to quietly slide out the back door to try to fix the problems that I lived. And, and experienced and, and do so through, you know, a recognition and an appreciation for how the industry got to this point, but thinking through, okay, what can we actually do better, right? It doesn't need to function the way it was initially designed. It was designed in, a, in an era that needed that at that time, but, you know, the world's changed. So let's create something to, to reshape this and go after it. So, the, so really what we want to do is create a platform that removed the friction across the retirement space, right? Give give any business, regardless of size, we focus on small, mid-sized businesses, right? And I'll define that by saying less than 50 million in plan assets. We have clients that are more than that, but, you know, less than 50 and, and you know, typically it ends up being probably less than 10, right? And that's, you know, 98% of the, of the market by volume. So we wanted to create a platform that can engage, that advisors could take out to their clients and say, here's what we're going to do for you and, and do it in a manner that gives people comfort and, and, and confidence in making the right decisions for their employees and then managing all the way through, right? Get employees engaged, get, get the businesses engaged, get 
all the thought processes that have to go behind this and make it feel really fluid and easy, yet manage the complex stuff behind the scenes. So we try, we do the stuff people don't want to deal with, right, behind the scenes and try to build technology to automate those, but do so and make sure that it's open architecture, that we're doing the right thing for the folks that we're working with, because we're not going to clients directly and knocking on doors. It's all through the, the lens of, of financial services and or payroll. And obviously, there's a lot of overlap between that. And what was the the kind of the impetus? Because there you have some competitors who are trying to go more of a direct approach. What what was kind of the 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 strategy or the rationale behind why to go to market through call it the kind of advisory channel or through payroll companies? Yeah, it, there's a few reasons. One, whether people want to admit it or not, and maybe this is an East Coast versus West Coast philosophy, but but you know I've spent the majority of my life on the East Coast. Advisors run this business. Right. And and advisors are front and center in doing this. You know, if you look at Fidelity's last study, I think last August, 92% of plans have an have an advisor attached to them, which is up from 68% back in, in 2008, if I remember right. the number correctly. So, you know, advisors are, are here and they're gonna they're they're staying, right? And this idea that advisors aren't needed in this space, I, I think there's a naivety behind that. I think there's there's opportunities for that, right? And there are people who maybe don't, but this it's complex, right? And, and designing the right plan and you know and, and creating a solution that can grow with a business and grow with the employees takes there's conversations that have to involve. So we look at it and say, listen, let's equip financial advisors to do what they do best and, and asset managers and insurance companies, but give them the ability to scale it. So so people aren't stepping away or, or saying, hey, I'm not going to service these small clients because I'm just not going to make money. And it's like, well, you know, you actually can. You can make you can make money. You can create a really sticky relationship that allows you to grow. And on the other side, you know, from our business, just purely economically, the cost of acquisition to go direct to businesses is, is huge, right? It, it's, you know, hundred times what it costed to equip advisors and do that. And if you think about, you know, fee compression and across the industry, and being cognizant of that, like it, it's happening, right? We're not going to yeah. be, we're not going to ignore it. So let's make sure that we're set up for the future, that we can build a profitable, scalable business on its own, purely through technology and not worry about anything else that could be perceived as conflicts or stepping on toes of, of the folks that we're equipping to engage with their clients. Yeah. It's interesting from a, a fee compression perspective and, you know, on more of like, call it like the you know, the robo side and better men. I remember a couple of years ago, I think I had read that, you know, at the time, and this is maybe two years ago that their cost of acquisition was like $800 per client and their average like revenue per client was like 80 bucks a year. And so, you know, that's, that's not a great economic when you're heavily funded and you don't have to be profitable and you're trying to kind of grow and scale from that perspective, but, but you don't need your own kind of oxygen, if you will, because it's being supplied externally that's a little bit easier to do. And that's one, one of the challenges I think that we've, what we've certainly seen, I actually write about this quite a bit in my latest book, The Fiduciary Formula, is, you know, the record-keeping business used to be a goldmine for a lot of these large asset managers because they could kind of give away the record-keeping because they knew they were going to have their kind of proprietary funds or proprietary product where it was really high margin, you know, high margin project, uh, product. And that was, you know, you could give away the record keeping. I think what we've seen over the past decade or so, and, and I would say this corresponds a few different, for a few different reasons. One, I just think the focus on fees and a lot of that was, you know, driven by 
you know, the litigation, you know, from from Jerry Schlichter and from, you know, his team at, at Schlichter, Bogart and Denton. So you had that litigation piece. I think to your point over the past, call it 10, 12 years, kind of this rise of this independent fiduciary advisor kind of stepping in as a, you know, as a advocate or intermediary between the traditional record keeping industry, where a lot of companies went direct, a lot of plan sponsors went direct to record keepers. And now you've, you've had these kind of professional fiduciaries, firms like, you know, like, like mine at Greenspring Advisors that have kind of stepped in as the, I would say in a lot of ways, maybe most trusted service provider to a lot of these, these plan sponsors. And also I think just the rise of kind of passive low cost investing, which is, you know, gone away from proprietary product, gone away from active management, gone away from revenue sharing. And so you've seen record keeping in general become a lot less profitable for these traditional record keepers. And we've seen kind of an impact, certainly on the advisory side, from that that kind of low margin business. You're getting more and more record keepers who are, you know, their response rates are falling, the level of kind of senior people is declining, that they're assigning the relationships. It's much more self-service um, because I think it's kind of an indirect approach to say, hey, if, if you know, you want to beat us up on fees, you're going to kind of get what you pay for. And so you talk about automation, maybe spend a little bit of time. How do you do that? Because you're competing in a, in a space in record keeping that historically has not been, well, maybe not historically, but, but more recently, not that profitable. Like how do you fight that battle and how do you kind of have success where some of these legacy large record keepers have struggled? Is it all technology? Yeah. So it's, so we, we're paperless, right? Unless someone legally says I need paper. So we think about, so, so we look at where are the areas of heavy lift, right? And where do humans get involved in non-value add ways and try to solve that because that's where things become expensive and exclusionary from the sense that people don't want to go down market or go to a certain type of client because they know it's going to revolve, it's going to involve a lot of people to get their hands in there. And so when I say that, there, there's things we think about like payroll, right? Processing payroll, capturing the payroll data, normalizing that data, capturing the census information and calculating eligibility without errors, right? That's a huge lift. And usually it involves people grabbing data, pushing it, looking for errors, pulling out, scrubbing data, going back into the system. So we think about how do we get that to go through in one fell swoop without anyone touching it? Because if that happens, right, then you eliminate all the downstream impacts, right? Where you missed eligibility, now you got to do loss gain calcs, now, you, you know, all of these things that become people intensive that drive the cost to serve up, which makes it uneconomical for most businesses to, to play in this space or most record keepers to be in this space. So we look at how do we automate that stuff as much as possible and get things through clean, right? So one of our initiatives um, as a business, so we have a goal, kind of a, a OKR that we set it, we want 95% of payroll to to go straight through without anyone touching it, right? We're at ninety two percent right now, right? And and which is still pretty dang good relative to, to the industry, right? And, and far far above anyone out there. So that's one piece, right? But other things like four AP twos, four forty fives, right? And, and sending notices and whatnot. That often involves people, right? Even if it's you know grabbing PDFs and pushing them somewhere. So we automate all that, looks at the plan design, looks at the timing of it, looks at who needs to go, who it needs to go to and when, and the system will automatically send that stuff out, right? So what we're doing in this is you spend the, the money upfront to build 
and engineer this process, but you can recoup that quite quickly when it's automated. Now you don't need to hire you know, people in-house to start you know, writing up for your V2 notices. So those are a lot of the things that we do. Loan processing, same sort of thing. How do you do 316? And we try to automate most of it. It's not fully automated, but most of the full 316 services down to signing are automated at this point. Right. So, again, just driving the cost down to serve, which allows us to be to run a profitable business at a fraction of the price point back out to the end plan sponsors and, and participants. And so why why like what is your competitive advantage? Like, why can you do it at a lower cost? Like what what is it? Is it legacy systems for these large record keepers? Is it kind of how their technology stack is designed? Like, what, why is it? Why is it so tough for a legacy record keeper to do what you're doing? Yeah, so it's a good question. So most record keepers, and, and I'll, I'll be specific. So when people say record keeper, oftentimes they think of a large financial institution, services organization that offers retirement plans, record, you know, let's use, um, I don't know, let's say Mass Mutual, right? Or whoever, right? Um, pick, pick a name. They're not really record keepers, right? They've they've effectively either licensed or acquired a piece of technology and surrounded it with a bunch of people to try to service it, right? And we look at it, that core technology is, is where the flaw lies, right? And, and we've learned right over our, 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 the, the life cycle of the festival, right, where we, we worked with legacy providers. That's where you started, to, right? That you, yeah, you, we, you basically, as you were launching, did kind of the same thing. Yeah, when we were launching, because we knew we couldn't build a record keeper out of the gate, it's too expensive, and we'd be out of business, right? Because it's it's a big ship, right? You have to build. So we worked with you know Relias and whatnot and, and other partners to optimize the interaction. But at its core, it's still flawed. There's only so far you can take that, right? And because you're still you're still riding on batch process, you're still you know you're beholden to to the the internal workings of those systems, which were built oftentimes pre-internet, right? And so there's only so far you can take it. Like if you you ask for you know ask for some of these companies, they're like, yeah, we'll give you our APIs, and not to get too technical, but like those APIs are not real-time processes. Those APIs are to send a message to kick off a batch process that runs overnight. Right. And that, like, that's not helping anyone. Right. And just so, um, just so listeners know, an API is what an app application programming interface, essentially yeah. kind of the hooks within the system that allows it to easily communicate or integrate with, with, with other systems without some of the legacy coding that had yeah, been done 10, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. It's, it's, it's having, you know, conversations with technology back and forth in real time and, and, and creating a process behind that. So, so we, we, when we did that, we realized, well, there's only so far we can do this, so we can take this. So we started pulling things out of the record keeper that would inherently reside there. So when I say that, I mean processing payroll. So you're using you know, some payroll company, you're pulling down the data of your employees, you're adjusting that to, to kick off the contributions and the investments for, for, the, for the employees. So that process takes a long time, it takes multiple days. And then oftentimes if there's an error and then it kicks out a file or that says, Hey, there's an error in row 42 here in this field. Right. And then you're going through trying to decide what that error is. So we're like, okay, that that's not helping anyone. So how do we optimize that? How do we normalize the data? How do we capture it? How do we clean it up front? So it happens instantaneously and then goes through. So in doing that, we kept going through a bunch of iterations of different thing processes, right. That happened. And then we realized, Hey, we, we've kind of built a record keeper. 
And then we started asking the question, well, why this? Why this? We just asked why until we were, you know, blue in the face and then started rethinking how it actually works front to back. So to get back to, to you know, specifically your answer your question, so we, we're no longer hamstrung by anything legacy. So we've built the front to back service, the technology to run retirement plans, but without a legacy record keeping in there and a completely new architecture that kind of resets the bar for the industry and how people think about their financial investment accounts and allowing it to behave more closely to what you do in your personal life, have that also behave in that manner to the to the workplace. But obviously payroll connectivity is key to that and making sure that you can have payroll deducted contributions into the right field. So when we do that, it allows us to drive down the cost, create an experience that people expect in today's kind of on-demand world, and then gives us a lot of white space to build on an infrastructure and an architecture that's designed for today's world. And we're not hamstrung and, and dragging along some, some legacy piece of technology that's not going to get you what you need. You can create something a little better, but at some point you just, you know, you, you throw the old car, the gas guzzler in the trash and you're like, I'm going to get a Tesla because that's where the world's going to go. Right. So that that's a little bit of the mentality that we have as we approach this. And so, to be fair, you guys had originally, I think, was Relias who you had yeah. kind of built on top of. So you kind of, you, you built this, you know, one of the, a lot of hype about you guys and, and you guys have definitely made noise in the industry. I think you guys have raised probably north of maybe $40 million yep. or so. I think most recently Goldman Sachs put about $30 million in yep. to you guys or, or, or led kind of your, your series. Yeah. Yep. And and obviously Goldman with their purchase of United Capital, I think last year, and and are are certainly they're using their balance sheet to make some noise in the you know in the the in the RIA industry and in now the retirement industry as well. And so you started with a really slick kind of modern interface, but it was built on top of right on top of Relias. And earlier this year, I think you kind of created this full kind of front to back, if you will, unplugging Relias and the plan is to migrate away from them and really have your own kind of front to back digital platform from soup to nuts, correct? Correct. Yes. Yeah. So we call it Vestwell 2.0. So we rolled it out in January, the first plans, all, all, it was starter plans, right? New plans. Um, we put on there more to, to control the variables, right? Majority of our business is actually conversions of plans, but we, we you know, started small and have put that in, in place. All new plan business has been going onto that platform since the beginning of the year. And, and we start conversions of plans, actually September 1st is the first batch that start coming on. And then, you know, then all plans will start to flow onto to the new structure. So we started with the Relias, yeah, and then we, we got to that point where we're like, we can only take this so far. Mm-hmm. We've also worked with clients, you know, they're, they're large players in the space and they, you know, one of them uses Omni. Right. And they're like, which is another, which is like a, a competitor to Relias is another kind of record keeping platform. Yeah. It's, it's all, they're both owned by FIS and uh, the old SunGuard. And so they're like, listen, we can't rip that out right now. So we're like, sure, we can put it on there. We can help. It'll be better than what it, what it is today without us. But over time, the idea is, you know, they start to bring and use the full stack where you really get the, the level of scale that people are looking for. So, so yeah, so it's been an evolution, right? Because you can't build all this stuff overnight, unfortunately, as much as you would love to. And it's expensive to build, like I said. It's, you're building a lot of complexity up front, but if you do it right, you do it thoughtfully, it, it's, it, 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 
keeps clients there for a long, long time, right? You get 10 years or so, the average you know, life expectancy of a re- client. Re- and- re- retirement plans are hard to win. It's a long sales cycle. There's, there's mainly because very few companies would, you know, I always say that the 401k plan isn't a priority until something happens and it becomes a priority, but you know, it's hard to, w- to win business, but because of that inertia, once you go through it, you know, you want to focus on like running your business. Like it's hard to lose business too, because it's not like a company wants to make a change every single year because it's not mission critical in terms of kind of running, running their business. So I think that's a good point. The stickiness factors from what I've seen, generally speaking, seven to 10 years is the average life cycle that a, that a service provider will keep a relationship, even doing kind of a mediocre job. Yeah. And I mean, and we all lose plans over time and I hate it. Like I take it personal every time we, you know, we've lost a plan, even if it's, there's nothing we can do about it. Right. Someone gets acquired or whatever and they, they roll yeah. up and, and it's like a kick to the stomach every time. Right. right. And, and so, cause you're just like, man, I, I you work so hard for, for right. these relationships. Right. And then two, to add more pain to our world, we do a lot of very large institutional enterprise students. Right. So, so household global brands, in the financial services and whatnot are leveraging best wall behind the scenes. Right. And those cycles are years, right. <laughs> they're, so, they're so, what do you, so what do you mean? What do you mean by that? Where they're kind of white labeling Vestwell as kind of their 401k platform that yes. they're going to offer to their clients. Yeah. So 95% of the, the business on our platform is always white label, right? So some people know it's us, some people don't, right. And, and it's their brand, it's their client. And we step in kind of as far as someone wants. So in that world, so, we work primarily, you know, they're all, most of them are all advisor led, but if you think of the relationship, you have advisors that are touch that are affiliated with either their own RA or a broker dealer or something. And then there's larger networks of these folks like the, the RA aggregator type players. And then to go, you know, upstream a little bit more then you have the warehouse broker dealer kind of structure. So we're kind of, we're working with all of that. Right, that that entire kind of gamut of a provider out there, we call it kind of preferred provider and um, an enterprise, and the enterprise oftentimes they have a their own legacy in-house solution, right? Or they they have ten solutions on the shelf that they're using, and then they they you know people are kind of waking up like I have to own the stack now as a as a provider because otherwise someone's going to walk my business out the back door, right? They're not capturing rollover business that's being placed with someone that's kind of ultimately a competitor on that side, right? So they're saying, hey, we have to bring this into our ecosystem. It has to be our experience and we're servicing the clients versus putting it on the shelf somewhere else and hoping we're able to kind of pluck people over to, to you know, their advisory world over time. So there's been kind of this consolidation or collapsing of the stack that we're seeing. And so a lot of our, you know, our larger deals are all kind of in that vein. It's interesting just as I'm parsing through kind of what you're saying is, and, and this is a, one of the things we've seen over the past five to 10 years, and it's just accelerating is this, I think this delineation of what I call kind of recreational 401k advisors. They may primarily wealth focused advisors that, you know, have some clients that are business owners and maybe be kind of the, maybe they're the advisor on the 401k plan because they have a relationship versus, you know, really dedicated specialist advisors. And, what you've seen is, and, and the point you alluded to, is that the small market is historically has been hard to make money in. And so that's kind of a, a niche where or, or a space that a lot of specialist firms, in order to make kind of the, you know, the generate the fees that they need to, they play more upmarket. Now we're starting to see 
that kind of come, that begin to come down. But what you were just talking about with maybe some of these enterprise deals where you have these advisors or these firms that are really looking at, at the 401k more as a way to kind of generate opportunity for kind of their private client side of the business, right? Their advisors on an individual level, not necessarily to be super specialist around the retirement side. Yeah. And I, and I think in a lot of the way, so most of our business, let me kind of start this way. Most of the advisors on our platform are specialists, right? Like yourself, right? And, and you guys are, are tough cookies to satisfy, right? Because you have a very specific way that, that you want to run your business and, and rightfully so, right? But it's we're, to, so, we're, to, we're totally high maintenance. <laughs> so, so we're totally high maintenance. Right? I've worked with advisors my whole life, right? And, and, you know, so there's a lot to build, right? There's a lot to put in place. We, we don't have it all, right? We're, we're always it's tirelessly working on, on enhancing that. But the, the analogy I often give is, is you know, you like as a specialist, like who do I want driving my car, right? Do I want the race car driver or do I want the person who's never been behind the wheel, right? right. And so I'd rather give the keys to the race car driver to go whip around the track, right? And, and but that car has got to work, right? And it's got to be souped up and ready to fly. So that's kind of how we, you know, the analogy that, that I always use, like of, of what we're building and how we're building it. But then you can tailor it down for the advisor that is primarily focused on wealth, but and says, you know, I want to help, you know, a few high profile clients out with their 401k. It's a, it's a bit of a different process, but most of our, our mindset is always through the lens of the specialist. And how do we equip a specialist to do this? Because then we can, you know, you can quickly pick up rollover business and wealth business without being a heavy lift, right? And that just kind of can run and be this really, you know, just, just this wheel of, of clients that are, that are being, that are being run on there. So, so we, we kind of err on that side versus targeting the advisor or the, the who's never really been in the 401k space. You know, it's interesting. And I've, as I've been, I come across it folks at times, or I'll read articles and it, it there's this, in one sense, you know, ERISA, ERISA is really complex. And, and, you know, a lot of the things when people think of an advisor to a 401k plan, they automatically default towards investments. And that's kind of the purpose of the fiduciary formula is that, you know, investments is one of six essential elements. But, you know, the investment pieces have really become commoditized, you know, over the, you know, I would say the last five to 10 years that what's interesting is what drives outcomes for plans. You have a lot of advisors and I would say the non-specialists are the ones who want to compete around investments. Let's talk about fund selection or we'll build models or whatnot. Not to say that's unimportant, but what really kind of moves the needle for plans, it's things like plan design. It's around, you know, governance and making sure that that there's the right structure in place and that it's getting implemented on a consistent basis. Honestly, one of the things you talked about is is operational failures. And, and we see this, you know, all the time and spend a lot of our time helping clients even clients that have plans that are really well run, like these plans are complex and you've got these different systems interacting. And, you know, it's funny, the the industry, especially the advisory industry, likes to fear monger and scare companies around things like fiduciary liability and you're going to get sued. And, you know, the reality is they totally overstate the probability of what those risks look like. And it's it's more of kind of like a fear-driven approach. I would argue that the greatest risk for companies is not breaching their fiduciary duties. It's operational failures that go unnoticed that you had a group of employees that that became eligible and 
they weren't given the opportunity to join the plan. And then you have to go back and that lasts for three or four years. And then you have to go back and you have to do gain and losses calcs. And then you got to go through epicers and, you know, those types of, we, we helped a company recently that they had miscalculated their true up for a decade. And, you know, it was, it was a six figure check that they had to write to kind of fix the plan. And that wasn't a fiduciary issue. And this is a very well-run company, but you know, how, how are you guys trying to help? I guess a couple of things. One, like how do you help advisors and plan sponsors around things like, let's say plan design, because at the end of the day that you can't invest your way out of savings deficit, like plan design is by far the biggest driver of outcomes, number one. And then also, and you talked a little bit about automation, you know, just how are you guys like, what, what's the service? You know, one of the cases I make or, or arguments I make in the fiduciary formula is that the most important thing, like technology is critical for record keepers, but one of the most important things is actually that you have a really good knowledgeable service team because when issues come up, like you need a team that you can call on that are going to help resolve issues. Like how do you guys approach that? Asking you a number of different questions now. So in a, in a minute, let's get into maybe some of the tools you provide for kind of plan design and and helping, helping uh, plans kind of optimize getting people in and saving at meaningful levels. But what in terms of maybe structure of the business, like how big are you guys? How many plans are we talking about? And, you know, what's your your service team look like? Obviously, there's a lot of, you know, technology and probably developers, but how are you guys kind of supporting? What's that experience that to support a plan sponsor and also the advisor community? What does that look like? Yeah, so um, a lot of questions here. So, but, <laughs> but, but so let, me, let me start with the plan design piece. So we, when we started this business, and, and I think you know, a lot of this comes from the team, right? If you look at our team, like most of us have been in this space, either in, in fintech, retirement, or wealth, right? And bring all those heads together and think about how things are run, with, again, with, with an understanding of how the industry got here. And when we started the business, we said, hey, okay, this is not a one-size-fits-all industry. It's just not. Right. And and if people tell you that, they're they're lying to you, right? It's just right. like us as humans, right? We're not all the same, right? We're we're all humans, but we have different needs. So how do you how do you make sure that you can adhere to that? Right. And that comes with flexible plan design. So we started wide. And it, you know, there was a lot we had to learn, right? We we do a lot of business with with some large institutions that do a lot of corporate spin-outs and things like that, right? And those plans can get complex really quickly. And you have to do respond immediately, right? So so we we, you know, we trial by fire with a lot of this stuff, right? And and get thrown into the mix and and, and have to do it. But we have we have the team and the heads to do it. But so we when we as we've done that over the years, we've learned a lot around where the risk, right? So we ultimately, you know, you want to do what's right by the, the business and the employees, right? And that's what a risk was there. So you make sure that you have that, but then you start unpacking some of the things. Like people have wonky eligibility requirements that there's, there's not adding any value, right? Someone sold them that so for some reason way back when, and they think, hey, we have to institute that now. And you kind of, you, you have that conversation. You say, do you really need this and why? Because here's where you're opening yourself up to risk. And so we we think of those things, right? In the plan design, ultimately it's a decision of, of the advisor and the plan sponsor, what they want to do, but we try to mitigate the risk in those things. You know, it's interesting you bring that up just as a quick little aside is, is a lot of times those are driven by like industry. If you've got a lot of turnover in your industry or, and so, you know, you may set historically, obviously today, the most common is companies are doing the right thing. And I think making, you know, most companies we see or that we work with, we recommend like make eligibility immediate, right? 
get people in and, and get them in the plan as quickly as possible. Now, there are some caveats where, you know, maybe there, there it is a, a high turnover business and maybe you set eligibility at three months because you lose a lot of people in the first three months and it's just kind of administrative. But I'm always amazed at how many plans we come across and you start to ask about things like the plan provisions. Well, why is it this way? Well, I don't know. That's the way we did it. You know, you know, we've done it forever like that. Ten years ago, okay, you have a, a six month eligibility. Well, how many people are still with you after six months? I don't know. Ninety five percent. Okay. Well, if that's the case, then you know, why? Right. 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 Ex- exactly. So it, it a lot of times what happens is this kind of collective knowledge. It's just the way it's always done. And nobody's kind of asking the questions of, well, why are you doing it that way? Is there a better way? Does it still make sense? And so I think to your point, asking, asking those questions are important. important. Right. And not yeah. just, yeah, we'll do it. Right. It's, it's why. Right. And listen, not, not saying we can't do it, but let's let's really unpack why. Yeah. So we, we do that on the plan design side. Right. And, and but we're, we're flexible. We have plans that span the gamut. But again, we try to eliminate the, the high risk things that we know will just create those operational failures. Right. Right. And then, which comes down to the servicing side, right? And how do you service? So, so we're unbundled, right? So we, when we started the business, it was fully bundled, right? Because we had to control the variables again, right? And as we've continued to build out the platform, we unbundle those services. So we have TPAs now running their books on our platform, right? And they're the servicing arm around it. In-house, we have a service team, right? We have, we're adding more, actually, we're posting two jobs around it today, two job recs, just, you know, just volume, right? And, and things coming in and, and clients coming on. So we have to scale that way. But how we think about it is, so we have a service team that, that focuses on the advisor relationships and their plan sponsors. And then we have a service team focused on participants because the participant is usually, you know, we have this kind of theme in-house that we manage towards. It's called, where's my money? right? If you think about most questions around, where's my money, right? Did the contribution go through? Did the distribution get, get, get posted? Did, you know, whatever it is, my loan processing, right? So you start to segment those things. And then what we try to do is build videos and tutorials. We have them actually in the platform to help people through that and then create notifications around that. So we try to have it be a, a, what I would call a self-service first, but you have to make that easy to Mm self-service, right? And because if someone wants a loan or a hardship, right, out of their 401k, they're typically they're not in a good spot right now financially, right? So they're already under stress. So how do you how do you help alleviate that and give them what they need up front and hope it doesn't turn into, you know, operationally a phone call, right? Because then it becomes a, a different level of service that you have to provide. So we're at right now, 92% of our business is serviced online, right? So so there's not it's my son. <laughs> Special, spe- special guest. <laughs> yeah. So, ninety-two so percent of the business is is serviced online. Uh, yeah. Uh. Okay. <laughs> As someone with four kids, I love it. I love yeah. it. <laughs> the joys of working from home. So, so in in that, we have ninety-two percent of the business is is serviced <laughs> online. <laughs> we have then eight percent turns into a phone call. And then we look at the errors, right? And where 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 can we automate things? Hey buddy, buddy, you go, go find a mom room. Huh? Because I'm I'm on the phone right now. Okay. Huh? I think she's she's not so we'll find her. Um I love it. I love it. <laughs> the real life, right? Um, hey, that's the that's the pandemic life right there. Yeah. So we think about those things and building out and then scaling. And then we're, we also have folks where they're stepping in and doing it. And we separate the service. 
So say Vestwell is doing the advisor and sponsor servicing, but the participants are being serviced through whoever our partner is. So we, we have that. We also, you know, there's also equations where we're just really completely headless, right? And we're not touching it. And we're just, we're just, again, just the engine. So we kind of look and say, okay, where do you want to step in? What do you want to do? And then let's, let's offer that solution. And then we can augment things and then look for, you know, look for ways to add, add notifications or, or whatever it may be in the platform. And so how, like, so how big are you guys now? I mean, how many employees do you guys have roughly? How many plans are you guys currently servicing? Yeah. So we have, uh, how many participants kind of across the platform? Yeah, 65 employees. I believe I have to look at the numbers, give or take 5,000 plans in participants. It's, I think it's a couple hundred thousand. It's kind of interesting. And, and I can't always say specifically because sometimes we don't see it right where we're, we're one piece of the puzzle and then we're, we're sending data or, or providing services on, on other pieces because we are really an engine at its core. Right. So we kind of look at the business, you know, we're growing, we, we just, Signed a couple contracts with, with some some enterprises. I don't know. We'll probably bring on a couple of these deals, or you know, probably be ten, twelve thousand plans a year through them. So so it's a high velocity type type business. And then you know, then we have other other spectrums of you know smaller advisors or RAs that maybe do you know five plans a year. So we're kind of we're not you know non-discriminatory in that factor. We're like, where do you do? Where do you play? And we'll equip you to do that in the best manner possible. And so you said that you know all kind of new plans are going on to the the 2.0 platform, and then it sounds like later this year, early next year, you're going to migrate away from kind of the the Relias. Like, what is that that like? What's that conversion experience kind of look like for I mean, plans? It's, it's funny. It's more just that when do we have the timing to to do it to to replace it? It's it's just like a conversion. It's doing block. We do block conversions all the time. So it's just, it's just about, you know, okay. We look at it like ourselves, like, okay, it's just another block. We have to convert and, and do that. The plan docs have already, the, the paper already is built for it. So we don't have to repaper anything. Okay. Um, and most people, frankly, won't notice, right? It's just, it's just, Hey, we're going to swap it out the back end. It's almost like a vendor technology swap in the back end. Their experience really won't change other than things will be faster. Um, who, do you, who do you guys use from a custody stamp? Like who, who actually holds the assets kind of custody wise? So 1.0 was Broadridge matrix. Okay. 2.0 is actually Folio Financial, Folio Institutional, which coincidentally was just acquired by Goldman. Um, <laughs> <laughs> <it was> not, <laughs> There's a theme. There's a theme, There's a theme here. There's a theme. Uh, it was funny. I don't even know why. I don't think they acquired it. For, for, they definitely didn't acquire it for us. They have their own initiatives that they're running internally. Right. So one of the biggest challenges just in general, and we're, we're seeing it kind of play out and you and I have chatted about this before, but so there's, there's, when we think about FinTech, the private client kind of wealth management retail side of the business where you started right with Folio Dynamics is so far advanced when it comes to technology and platforms and decision support tools than the retirement industry. Mm -hmm. And probably part of that, I think in a big part, is just access to data to power kind of those those platforms. We we have a, you know, we have a, a large private client practice as well. And you know, I sit around jealous and and frankly pissed off at like some of the tools they get to play with that they get to use from a planning standpoint, a portfolio management standpoint with our private clients. And then, you know, 
on the retirement side, sometimes it feels like, you know, we're in a cave just having invented fire. That's like how far behind we are kind of technology wise. And so, you know, you've been on both sides of the business. What, what do you think is, why do you think fintech and the investment so far in fintech has shied away from the ERISA side, the corporate retirement side, and has really flowed into the private client side? It's a great question. So I, I think there's there's a lot of reasons. Uh, and I asked the same question of myself, right? Which has thankfully given me a job, right? So, you know, having kind of been through the the building tech for the wealth side of the business, right? There's there's these pockets of money, right? That I think advisors naturally gravitated towards, right? Which created the the need for technology to service um, folks. But but at its core, right? The, the biggest things on that side are you have planning, you have modeling, trading, rebalancing, and, and which incorporates tax, tax right? Right. Yep. That's kind of it, right? So they're conceptually they're all it's pretty easy. Right. It's it's hard, you know. I've built out UMA platforms and kind of my background is really building, you know, unified managed households, unified managed accounts. And but it all comes down to tax, right? How do you swap tax lots and do those things? And then when you get to the retirement side, you have that, right? But then you have this ERISA layer, right? That I think people in in a, another level of the IRS, the DOL you have to deal with that I think scares people off, right? And it's complex, right? It's stuff that's been around 40 years, hasn't really been touched much and repapered. I told, you know, I deal with folks on Capitol Hill semi-frequently and and one of my initiatives and one of the folks we're working with, part of the Banking, Finance, and Tech Committee, I was like, I want to rewrite ERISA. Like, I, I'm like, I'll do it. I'll, I'll, we'll put it on our shoulders and we'll, we'll, we're going to come down. We're going we're gonna to throw you a bunch of red lines what just doesn't apply anymore. And... Because it does, it does kind of keep fiduciary. You listeners heard it first that you are going to rewrite ERISA. Yeah, how many go? My lawyers are going to be <laughs> okay. general counsel, especially. Okay, all right, all right. General counsel is a rock star, and, and she's been in the ERISA space for over twenty years. She's she's amazing. We, we we talk about this stuff all the time, but but so it's kept people away. Now here's the other piece, right? The when you you look at people building things and servicing these industries they've usually only been on one side of the aisle for their entire careers. And there's very few people that cross that bridge. And I don't know why. And I see it all the time when I talk to people. They're like, oh, I know wealth, but I don't know retirement. Right? I'm like, it's actually the same right? in many ways, right? at its core. And I think of it through the tech lens. At its core, it's the same. And, and record keeping is like trust account right? at its core. If you look at a trust, a trust right. system, that's how you know, your P&I and, or in a brokerage world, your margin and your cash, those are actually quite similar to your vested and unvested in loan buckets, right? They're forfeitures, whatever, that sit in a plan. So we kind of look at it through that lens. Mm. And that's what's given us. And this, this is, you know, Vestful 2.0 is conceived over a lot of beers and whiteboards in, in our conference room. And we were we just kept asking why. And, and uh, the gentleman who runs, who runs ops and, and tech ops on, on our team, he was with me for you know eight years at Folio, and we we just started drawing stuff up, and we started dissecting. We're like, well, why does Arissa ask for this? And then we started you know carving it out. So we redid the architecture and said, let's just think of record keeping. No one cares about record keeping. Everyone you know gets scared of record keeping, but no one cares, right? So why are we afraid of it? And let's just dissect it and ask why until we're you know we can't drink any more beer. And, and that's basically what we did. And, and that was how we, we came up with this. So when you, when you actually just kind of remove that, that fear factor, yet be cognizant of what needs to happen, then 
you, like record keeping can be can be modernized, right? So so that's I, I think at its core, that's a lot of kind of how this industry has just you know kind of been stagnant in many ways, right? And and but we're just trying to fix that, right? So we think of architecture, right? When you look at our business, we stripped out record keeping and and said, okay, it doesn't exist. You got custody and you have a platform on top. And that platform on top needs to adhere to ERISA, but record keeping doesn't need to exist the way it exists. So then we started segmenting account types. So, and we started looking at vested and unvested and forfeitures and loans and all of that as sleeves, like you would look in a unified managed household or unified managed account, right? And, and started backing into that and then using payroll as the ability to direct which buckets things go into. And so we came up with this, this kind of structure that allows us to think about future state of where does the next best dollar for every individual go? I don't care if it's in your, your workplace retirement plan, right? But it could be in something else that makes more sense for you and that individual. And then going back to the data level, right? And making sure we have the data to give people the best direction possible without them having to be experts or scared about, am I doing the right thing? Or arduous and, and, and operational. I got to direct money here for one payroll, and then I got to direct money here for my next one. Let's just have it all happen in one fluid motion and one seamless architecture and give that information back to the advisors so now they know where the touch points lie and when they need to have more, more pertinent conversations for that specific individual. So that's kind of what we think about it. And maybe it's just naivety where we just walked in and, and this is kind of how I got into the, the wealth world and how I ended up building unified managed accounts because I didn't know anything. And I just asked why. And then they gave me a couple of developers. My, it, this is a check free five serve way back when. And they're like, oh, that's a good idea. Here's a couple of developers, go figure it out. And, and that was how yeah. UMA came to be in this industry and what we were doing. It's funny you say that because I, I, I came the same way in the retirement side. When we started Greenspring, we were pure 100% private client wealth management. And we kind of stumbled, and this is going back you know, 15 years, I kind of stumbled into some 401k plans. And I brought, you know, because I hadn't grown up in it, I would come across things like fees, which took me a while to figure out. But once I did, I was like, well, this is dumb. Why, why is it done this way? And it was naivety, right? You, you look and you say, well... Sometimes it's it's easy to kind of get in your echo chamber and you 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 know you can't get you can't get out of it. One of the things you talked about, which I think is which is interesting and is a real challenge, is just democratizing data and having access to data. And it, you know, it's interesting. I'll just use, you know, a fidelity or a Schwab, if you will, two of the 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 largest, probably the two largest RIA custodians. Those RIA custodians have historically provided data to RIAs. And I think that's what has helped and been very open about providing access to that data, which I think has fostered technology companies, you know, to be able to kind of build platforms, a Money Guide Pro or an eMoney or, you know, what Aaron Klein's doing over, let's say a Riskalyze or InvestNet. And, you know, you get, because you've got that data, now you build these tools and then some of the power is like integrations, you know, between systems and whatnot. And, Fidelity and Schwab will do that, let's say, on their their RIA custody business. But then on the, the the retirement side, you know, it's a it's firewalled off. And I think a lot of the big providers, that's been one of the challenges. And maybe it's because that data's been residing in legacy systems that are just not built for the modern era. And so kind of from a development standpoint and extracting data is really, really hard. Also, I think there's some potential conflicts that are in there, right? And we're starting to see that. In terms of like these record keepers, we saw Empower just bought 
personal capital. And you're starting to see that these providers are moving away in some ways, not all of them, but some ways away from kind of proprietary asset management or funds. And they're moving around wanting to kind of control the participant experience. They want to keep assets on book, right? When somebody retires or leaves that they're not rolling their money out into an RIA at a different or IRA at a, you know, some other custodian that they can kind of capture that. And actually these record keepers in many ways are, are very competitive to the kind of the advisory industry. So you guys have kind of made a conscious choice, you know, not to, not to engage in some of those conflicts and, and, you know, not have kind of what I would call, you know, kind of co-opetition with advisors or TPAs. And, and, you know, what was the impetus behind, behind that? Yeah. So I think it's, it comes back to doing the right thing for people. Right. And, you know, and everyone has their own opinion and I'm not, I'm not faulting people that want to go direct to find sponsors or services participants. That's fine. But I think about, you know, I, I, maybe, I'm, maybe this is my old school mentality. Like I think advisors add a lot of value and there's a lot of great advisors there. And how do we equip advisors to do that? And to do that, you have to build a, a business as best well that can run on its own without needing to rely on a conflict, right? Or not needing to rely on some additional, you know, asset management revenue stream or, or whatever it is, right? And so we look at our business and say, okay, we want every plan to be run at a, at a you know, gross margin that looks like a SaaS business, right? Uh, like an 80% gross margin, but do so at a, at a price point that is, you know, far less than the competition. And that's it. And that's just pure tech. Right. So if we do that, we have a fantastic business that runs on its own. So I don't need to go chase rollover business or try to pull that direct, like an Empower or Fidelity or someone out there. And you know, Fidelity is a big backer. Right? And so. and not to knock, like we have really good relationships with those large record keepers. And and sure. like I said, just come from a, you know, you know, generally speaking, do a really really good job for for mutual clients. But it it is a you know, this, this inability to get data, that's one of the big challenges. And maybe you can talk about with, yeah. with kind of Vestwell, you know, one of the things I talk about in the fiduciary formula is that, you know, I, I, the last chapter is kind of the future of fiduciary. And so I just kind of vision cast five or 10 years, how things potentially could change. Not that I have a crystal ball, but, you know, I've got a whole section about automation that I think, uh, you know, that is the, you know, the, the way to drive scale over time, but then also kind of big data and decision support tools. One of the challenges is data accuracy, data mm-hmm. integrity, getting access to it. But then in a lot of cases, sitting with a committee, the data we do have, it might be a quarter, it might be two quarters old. And so it's not real time. And so you're you're trying to make decisions without either the decision support tools or the data you need that's up to date to kind of make strategic decisions moving forward. And so how are you guys trying to kind of tackle that issue? And is this, this call it modern kind of digital platform that was, wasn't a a retrofitted legacy system, but really kind of built from, you know, from the modern era up, are there ways that that can help enable, help enable plant sponsors and advisors to make better kind of real time decisions using data? Yes. So there's, we're kind of barely scratching the surface of this stuff right now. And because there, there's a lot of, you know, things we have, we want to do that we're focused on, but, but okay. So, so the data, we have a mountain of data, 
that we get, right? So this comes back, you know, we can talk about security and infrastructure because right. that's, that's absolutely critical. In this, you know, you, we have a lot of very sensitive data. Uh, right. make you go anywhere. But the when the data comes in, you know, everything is sanitized and scrubbed and whatnot. And there, there's kind of this, you know, our CTO says this all the time. He's like, it doesn't help us to get bad data faster, right? <laughs> so so how, do you, how do you get, you know, data faster, but have it be clean? And, and that's a whole, that's a huge undertaking. And we see it all the time, right? Pay, or, uh, birth dates and social security numbers are like the top two things. We monitor these trends every week, right? Of what's changing. Last week was, was birth dates and, and, and social security numbers were the, were the anomalies that we kept seeing in data. Because someone fat fingers something, you know, whatever it is, right? And so you have to capture the data, sanitize it, and then, and then start to look for trends, right? And it's all trend, re, re, you know, trend analysis and pattern recognition, right? I don't want to go so far to say it's, it's AI. That's, a, that's a overreaching. But, but we look for patterns and we look for things and then we can start bouncing that off of, of industry and, and payroll provider and plan design and then start giving better analysis back to advisors and sponsors and participants and say, here's what you should be thinking about. We're not going to tell you what to do. We're not going to force it out of your throat, but here's some information that could be valuable to you. And, and saying, hey, if you're a, a restaurant chain, right, and you have this, you know, your eligibility could look like this, which is going to streamline your participation and, and your overall processing, which is going to, you know, minimize a lot of the loan, whatever it is, right? You can start to layer in all these things and then create notifications back up. I'll give you one example too that, that we think about, and we haven't built this yet, but this is the, the infrastructure is there to do this in the, in the underlying architecture. But when a business comes on board, we can ask the question of, you know, do you have a high deductible insurance plan? And if they say yes, you know, the next question is, do you want to offer a health savings account to your employees? And if they say yes, great, that's all we need, right? And then we know the payroll connection. We know where the health savings account field is in the payroll data, right? And then when a participant comes in and they become eligible, we look at who they are, you know, all the information we have in the census information. We say, hey, do you want a health savings account? And if they say yes, we can issue, you know, a card out of the bank custodian that we're working with that goes to that, that person. And then now they spin up, the system will automatically spin up that HSA account underneath. So you have your 401k, you have your HSA, and then through data aggregation, we can look at and say, hey, you have these other rollover accounts sitting out there, right? We can pull those in, right? So now you have essentially kind of three account types lined up. And then you can start looking at where the next best dollar for that individual based on how much they get paid and how they get paid and how frequently they get paid, you know, hourly and salary and so on. Where does that dollar go? Right, goes to your 401k, right? And, you know, just top that, then you go to your HSA, then back to your 401k, your IRA, right? Right. So you start making these decisions or helping people make these decisions without having to think about it, right? And say, huh, what? You know, I'll use my wife as an example, right? She works for a, a large biotech consulting practice, right? And they have an HSA, but that is totally sidecard from you know a separate system from their 401k. Right. So now you have to consciously say, well, what do I, what should I do next? Right. Right. And that's not going to happen. People are tied up or they they just don't have time. Or they're confused by it. So how do you make those decision points easier? And you do that through data. And can you, and, and maybe this is something kind of the direction you're going because it, it, you know, you, you obviously HSAs triple tax free. I mean, it is the best retirement savings vehicle for people. I would argue even better than a 401k plan, but the ability to, let's say I'm, I enroll in the plan, let's say I'm automatically enrolled, hopefully, you know, up to the point to kind of get the full match. Once I hit kind of the full match, 
do, do you envision automation where, okay, now I also have this HSA. I'm going to go in and fill up the HSA. Once that's filled up, then automatically my contributions are going to go back into the 401k plan. As opposed to your point, you know, people don't have a knowledge gap for the most part. They have a behavior gap. They, if they have to say, okay, I'm going to save up to this amount in the 401k plan and then I'm going to turn that off and then I'm going to go in and I'm going to turn on the HSA and fill that up to this amount. And then I'm going to turn that off and I'm going to go back to the 401k. It ain't happening. Like it just, you know, people forget, they get busy. They, they, so do you envision ways to potentially automate that approach down the road? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's near and dear to to kind of our overarching what we want to do. Right. Our goal as a business, right, is close the retirement savings gap in the country, right? Yeah. And we can't control Social Security, right? But this is one thing we can control. We can have a direct impact. So how do we, you know, to your point, behavior is key, right? How do you change behaviors and allow people to do this, but do it in a fluid way? Another way to do this is, is kind of like you think about peer analysis, right? Who, what are other people in my industry doing, right? Yeah. And if you can surface that information in a fluid way, right, that, that's like, Oh, maybe I I should be you know contributing twelve percent instead of you know just my three percent right. or whatever. Right. Yeah. The 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 power and curse of comparison and and gamification in a lot of ways. Right. Of of the one thing I do say about the curse of comparison is we see this all the time in like fee benchmarking. Right. You could have a plan that has really crappy high fees, and if you benchmark them against another plan of comparable size that has really crappy high fees. They're going to feel good because they're like, hey, I'm better than, you know, this plan over here. But at the end of the day, you both have crappy high fees. Like it, it, yeah. it, it, right. So it's, it's, but the point being is, yeah, I think, and, and you've seen that with obviously a lot of technology platforms having that data, the power of that, that now you can start to do comparisons and you can start to see and help people kind of see, you know, where they are. It's funny. We, we built a number of years ago, maybe six or seven years ago, I built, a proprietary tool that we use called the Clarity Quotient. And it it has like 40 key performance indicators about high performance plans. It breaks it down between kind of governance and plan design and fees and expenses and then kind of participant engagement. And there's a score between zero and 100 called the KQ score. Like the plan design, for example, you know, for I, there, I had had clients that I had been talking to around, hey, you need to, you know, you need to implement automatic enrollment. You need to do it at 6%. You know, you need to escalate up to 15%, 1% a year and had gotten pushback. And then once they saw their QQ score and saw that they were like suboptimal compared to like, because we had benchmarking data and they're like, well, what do I need to do to go from a 78 to a 90? And it's like, well, you got to do that. And they're like, okay, I'm done. Like, let's do yeah. it. And it, it just is interesting. The the desire that people want to be, you know, better than the, the guy or gal sitting next to them. Yeah. So it's an interesting, yeah. it's an interesting point. What, what do you think about, you know, one of the things that that came out of the SECURE Act is, and I don't want to miss the opportunity to talk about this, but especially being in, call it that under $10 million space, but, you know, the idea of, you know, MEPs and PEPs and, you know, multiple employer plans and, and pooled employer plans, which we're just starting to scratch the surface and to see how I'm still not totally sold on that market, though I'm open-minded about it. But how do you guys think about that world? Do you think it's much ado about nothing? Do you think it, 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 it really, you know, the future is really bright for it? Are you guys able to support MEPs or PEPs at this point, or is it on the kind of the roadmap? So this is the way I personally, 
my own opinion, right? For, for the little that it's worth. The so I think maps are fine. Maps are fine. I don't think they are this holy grail that everyone thinks they are this this you know magic potion. And 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 two, I think I think for the, the players that are going to really out there pushing it, I think because if you look under the under the hood, right, that engine is pretty archaic. For, so from their standpoint, it's a way to help them scale. I would argue that's probably not in the best interest of the business yeah. that's going to be using it. So we built our platform for the for, through the lens of we can offer a custom plan for a business but cheaper than any map that's out there, right? Or that will be out there, Pep. And so I think that's that still holds true. Now, that being said, there are people who they want maps and they want PEPs. So we actually have a couple of maps coming on right now. That, that are being converted onto the platform and we can do that. And, and when the, you know, when the legislature, when the, the rules get finalized, you know, we'll launch peps for folks and that's fine. Like we're not going to tell people what they need, like how to run their business. If that's, if they want to focus on that and that's going to be their differentiating factor, fine. There are a number of states. We just want a state plan, right? The state mandated IRA plan for one of the recent states that will be the engine behind that. And one of the conversations we're having is like, do you want a state offer map, right? Or, or a 401k versus just these these kind of uh, payroll deducted IRAs for the employees, because that's where I think you're going to end up moving the needle in those businesses mm-hmm. and they can be offered. So, so I do think there are, and in those situations, I think they're a good fit. We'll see those happen and we're going to, we're going to offer it. We're going to service it. We'll be an engine providing it, but you know, we're not going to make the claim that, you know, everyone needs a map or a pep. I think we'll leave that to, to, you know, folks out there that, that actually want to engage with that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Part of the, at least the value prop that I have seen is that a lot less expensive, right? There's less risk associated with it. I think it's a bit of a false narrative. Like just because you're a small plan doesn't mean you can't have really, really competitive fees. In a lot of cases, I mean, I look at clients that we have where, or in certain industries where there are MEPs and, you know, are all in costs are going to be less or less than what, you know, by by a meaningful amount, less than, than, you know, what, what, what these maps are. So I do think that's a bit of a false narrative. It'd be interesting to see most 401k plans are sold. They're not bought. And so it'll be interesting, at least in my, at least in my opinion, yep. it'd be interesting to see kind of how that, how that plays up, plays out. But it sounds like, you know, it, it, it you guys have kind of an architecture and a platform that to provide choice, if you will, that, that if that's something that call it an advisor wants to be able to launch that you guys can support, but I, I like the point that you said is that most businesses, like you said, are not a one size fits all. You know, there is, once you get over a certain size, typically you're going to want to, just to compete, you're going to want to have some more, you have custom needs for your business that may not be able to fit in a, a nice, neat box. Right. Exactly. So, you know, and then there's other players that are going after large businesses with, with peps and, and maps. And I'm like, and I'm not at those at the table, right. And making those decisions for them. But in my mind, I'm like, well, you're of that size and scale. You should you should be doing what you need to do for your right. your business and your employees, right? Yeah. Don't, don't be you know yeah. buy something you don't need to buy. Yeah, use your size and your scale, right? right. To to negotiate economies of scale like that. That yeah. like you can you can kind of do it. You can kind of do it yourself. One of the things you talked about was just cybersecurity, and that is obviously that's a huge issue within the industry. I think personally, the next battleground for ERISA litigation, you know, historically it's been really 
fees, not even so much funds. That's a misnomer. A lot of plan sponsor thinks that like the biggest litigation risk fiduciary wise is around like poor investments. Like that's actually not really, it, that's not what we've seen the past 12 or 15 years. It's been around excessive fees. I suspect, and you're starting to see, you're starting to see this with some some recent cases is two things. I think one, cybersecurity, right? And so protecting personally identifiable information, protecting, you know, participant uh, data from that perspective. Now, I think the other aspect of that is data as a plan asset, right? Who who can record keepers or advisors, can service providers use confidential data in order to market and sell, kind of cross-sell additional services? I think those are the two, you know, protecting data and then utilization of, of data. And if you know, if it turns out that data is actually a plan asset that that creates, that's going to throw a wrench in the works of a lot of people in the industry. What's your take on kind of those two areas and how do you guys address specifically being kind of a digital first platform? How do you guys address cybersecurity? So this goes all the way back, right? So when it was a couple of us in a a room just designing what this business was going to be, one since day zero, one of the, the guys on the team, he was um, uh, head of cloud infrastructure at SunGuard way back when. And I, I got a lot of flack from our, our venture backers when we were raising capital. Like, why do you need this person out of the gate, right? And I was like, we have to build this the right way. Because there, there's a lot there, right? It's, it's I, I always say, we are touching the second most sensitive thing in people's lives, right? You have your family and then you have their money, right? right? And, and you have to treat it that way, right? And so we built sometimes probably overly secure structure. So it's all cloud, AWS, you know, East Coast, West Coast. And then we, we house it in Docker containers, not to get too tech, techy, but, and then think about it, we wrap it with a bunch of layers that monitor for knocks, right? And everything's encrypted when it's restful state as well as when it's moving. And um, nothing is in a table. Everything is scattered about in different containers all over the place. And there's then there's keys that are scattered about to unlock the data. So even if you break in and you get through the, the you know, 20 layers of security, the data is nothing. You, there's nothing you can do with it. And we, we do pen testing and all that where we basically give keys to people and they try to hack the system. And, and so we, we go through that every, every, I think it's every six months, we do pen tests uh, in the system with third parties that, that uh, do that. And all the SOC 2 regulatory stuff we do. It. And this is all expensive stuff to do, right? And would you have to do it because it's so critical because if you, if you screw that up, right, you know, you know how hard it is to regain trust, right? Yeah. Reputational uh, risk, right? Is, yeah. Is. So, so we, we built it that way from the beginning. And, you know, in, in my career, right, I've, I've architected things incorrectly, right? And you learn from those mistakes and, and never had, you know, thankfully a security breach that regard, not how would. But, the, um, but we build it that way. So, so one of the cool things to do, so these things are all virtual, right? They're housed all over. And when we sense knocking, we have these, these, these uh, things that look for threats. And they're always monitoring, you know, constant monitoring. We get, you know, millions of times a day these threats come across, right? From, you know, people across the globe trying to hack or whatever. But what the system does, that's kind of cool and I'm proud of the team, like it basically, it did, when we sense a knock, everything disintegrates and it disappears. And then it goes, it spins up somewhere else. So it's like this perpetual chasing and, and tag that, that you, can't ever, you can't ever catch 
because the second a, a knock is sensed, everything disappears and it's all virtualized, right? And then it comes back together somewhere else. So, so that's how the system is designed. So, so for, at its core, and we have you know a whole architecture review because we deal with very large financial institutions. You know, like, like and some of these are the biggest in the world, right? And and we've been told when they've gone in and done their procurement and security audits that often we're more secure than they are in how we build this stuff. So, so how does so how does your approach would you say differ from kind of the legacy record keeping approach? Legacy stuff is often there. It's housed somewhere in a server somewhere. It's not necessarily virtualized. They may surface it virtually somewhere else, but at its core, it's still housed probably in a, in a cage somewhere, right? In a server farm. Ours is 100% virtualized, right? So it's just spread across and, and dispersed. So, so in that sense, it's, it's, it's virtualized. And they're also, we, we, the way we store data, we're, we have the luxury of separating it because we don't have to map it back to like a COBOL system that looks at data one specific way, right? We can look at data the way that we think is best, right? And some of the, the initial guys on the team, right? They came out of a, a security tech firm, right? So now you think through the lens of like how tokens are created and, and all of that stuff, right? That, so so the, the legacy guys don't have the luxury of doing that because if you can layer it on top, but at its core, you still have to, you still have this flaw because it's there. So if someone gets through to that core, you're kind of, you're done. And then you have, you know, then little things like multi-factor authentication or people calling and trying to get loans for accounts that aren't theirs, right? You have, that's a whole other level of security and policy that you have to put in place. So we, I mean, this, we have risk committees and, and both from the legal process side, as well as from the tech side that are constantly doing this stuff. That's, that's all they do, right? This is kind of like the DevOps mentality, right? And then when you get to the data that we're servicing back to people, right? To your kind of second question, that is, is sensitive, right? So you, we don't give, we'll only give data for a particular individual if it's their data, right? But then you can take broad market data, just like industry studies, right? right. And you can rub it and you can do it based on the data that you're capturing. And kind of and look at it that way. So we're not we're not we're never but it's not per, it's not personally identifiable in that case, right? But you're right. Unless, unless it's for that individual, and that individual has requested it, right? So it's, it's the, the the terms and conditions. Like, do I want this? Yes or no? And everyone has going to have their own opinion. You know, I, I too. So I um, prior to the acquisition of Visa, so I was on the advisory board of Quovo, right? And 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 Lowell and, and Nico and that team, right? I've known since. The very beginning of their and Quovo the, being an aggregation technology, yeah, right? That that information, you know, right. credit card, whatever it is, and analyzing that, giving that. They were were they acquired by Visa or they were by Plaid? Plaid was acquired by Visa. There you go. Okay. Yep. And you know, we we have these conversations. One of this is kind of an interesting. One we talked. To, we were having lunch one day with one of the commissioners of the SEC, Lowell and myself, and John Stein from Bedford was there, and we started talking about data, right? And who owns the data? Right. Who, who is it? Right. Because they and they dealt with this all the time. Quovo, Cladwell, right. Who owns this data and what can I give back to, to someone or a financial mm-hmm. institution? And so we got in this discussion around your bank account. Right. And who owns your bank account number? Do you own it? Right. Do I own my Chase account number, Wells number, whatever, wherever you bank. Right. Or, or does the bank own that? Right. And then and then why can't I own it? Right. And then why can't I take that somewhere else? And have it be portable with me because who cares? It's just like my like my cell phone number in some ways, right? If I go to a new exactly right, you yeah. want to right? That's you. It's part of your identity at this point, right? So so you know we started thinking about that and having these discussions with the commissioner, and, and it got pretty deep, pretty fast, right? 
and and you know, and nothing was solved. But then we it just opened the door for conversation around. Okay, what what is actually yours versus what can be leveraged, whether it's scrubbed or not, and given back yeah. to someone else. And I think it'll be an evolution, right, for for a long time because it, it hasn't been solved. And I don't know if it will be solved. It'll always move. Um, but those are real discussions, right? But it, you have to be sensitive, right? You, I, one of our kind of my life philosophies or, or kind of mantras is like always put yourself in the, in, in the other person's shoes because if you're not, like it, you're, you're doing an injustice to whoever's on the other side, right? And and so we always think through through that lens, but we want to give them the best information possible to make those decisions because this right. is impactful, right? And we're, we're, we are trying to have a huge impact on, on what we do. So what do you think, looking forward, let's call it the next five to 10 years, like where do you think this industry is going? What do you think the, the, future, the future looks like kind of across the spectrum for employees and participants, but also record keepers, advisors, kind of the industry in general? Yeah, we're, kind of, we're seeing the early days of this again, right? And, and this has always been a cyclical piece of the financial world, right? Where it's, it's, it's unbundle and then rebundle, right? Whatever those services are. We're, we're starting back in that rebundling era, right? Where, where people are looking at, when I say people, I mean financial institutions that say, what do I do? Where's my core asset? And how am I going to bring all of this together? So we're seeing people come in and say, I need to own the stack. And, and I think that stack is going to get bigger and bigger, right? Whether it's, you know, whether it's, it's in all led through technology, right? And the world we live in now, right? Three months ago, four months ago, this is a totally different world, right? Now we see people who are caught flat-footed and weren't ready to be tech forward or digitally engaged. Now they're scrambling, right? And they're like, we have to be. And that's not going away at this point, right? So it's all about how do I have a digital first touch point and, and use that with, with a human to create that experience and do so at scale, right? And provide the best service. And that service is going to have to be owning the stack. And it could be a small couple person shop that's going to own that stack, or it could be a large financial institution. And I don't think, and, and I think there, there's room for all of it, right? And how but, would you define the stack? I mean, for, so in our world, it's, it's, you have to offer, you know, you're going to have the investment side, you're going to have the technology to run the business, right? And that business could be, we think about it from a workplace to individual, right? And call it cradle to grave, right? And how do you actually own that relationship all the way through, right? So, you know, 75% of a, a American employees, their only source of invested asset is their workplace retirement plan, right? So how do you take that, right? And now create the ability to engage them with other aspects that are really important for who they are and where they are in their life, but they may not, you know, have the time or experience or knowledge base to actually go and explore those opportunities. So how do you bring those worlds together? And, and have that touch point that starts in the workplace that carries someone through. And that could be, you know, like we talked about the HSA, it could be insurance. You know, we could talk about, uh, we talk about this all the time, kind of the managed outcome to guaranteed income, right? And, and, you're, and how do you have that, that kind of soft landing and flip into a guaranteed income structure in one fluid motion? You roll out of the plan, you're, ma- you're managing your outcome to a very specific point, you know where it's going to be, and then boom, guaranteed income, go. Right. And, and so creating that kind of that work stream, it's hard. No one's really solved it. We're working on it. Some of our partners and investors are working really hard on it. And I do think we'll get there. But I think that's going to be a key component. Right. And do you see Vestwell is really call it the platform that kind of brings all that together, if you will? Yeah, I, 
we want to be the engine that powers the industry, right? We, we, we're not, you know, you won't see TV commercials or subway ads in New York with basketball on it, right? We, I see that for people that we power, but we want that, in, that Intel inside model yeah, that we've talked about, engine, yeah. right? We want to be the engine for the future, and and for now and, and all the way through, right? And it, it starts with creating the architecture and the the infrastructure to run that, and we're not going to build it all, right? And I don't. Maybe this will change, but like I have no desire to build another wealth system, right? I've done that a couple times in my life. But could you see integrating that where you guys are? I mean, could you see in some ways, let's just, you know, you talk about the the kind of the experience for employees where they can kind of get access to their entire financial picture life in one place. I also think about that from the advisor side. Like, do you envision this in time where advisors are essentially, you know, maybe running their practice through kind of like the, the Vestwell platform, if you will, bringing in tools that maybe not they, they you aren't building, but that you're integrating with because yeah. you've got this kind of API driven platform that, that can kind of, you know, tech enable other, other tools, if you will. Exactly. You think of like wellness planning, you know, student loan, whatever it is, right. Managed accounts. There's things that we're building that we will build. And, and then and maybe in the same vein for the same offering, we'll partner. And, you know, we'll use that, you know, managed accounts is one of them, right? We'll, we'll, we'll have our own managed account solution here and, and allow advisors to help differentiate their offering with a core managed account solution that really separates them from the pack and leading with the tech. And, and then also, you know, there are other people who maybe want a more commoditized type of managed account solution. That makes sense for them. And I'm sure, I don't care. Like, we'll give it to you. If that's, if that's core to your business, and your value add you want to bring bring to your clients, then we'll happily do that. So that's that's how we kind of think about it. And then, and then leading into to everything else, right? Insurance or whatever. Like we're not going to be an insurance broker, but if someone wants to offer insurance to participants and, and businesses, we can make that available through our platform because we have the touch point, right? And then how do you carry someone through the rest of it? Yeah. Okay. As I said, kind of the purpose of this podcast is really to make. ERISA fiduciary smarter. So if you could, if you could offer one piece of advice or wisdom to ERISA fiduciaries that would make them smarter, make them more effective at what they do, what would it be? Uh, probably the wrong person to ask because they're smarter than I am. But, but I would, you know, I, I the way I think about this is, is it, it's our, our job as, as an industry, right. To provide the best, financial advice and service possible, right? And and making sure that we're always doing the right thing, right? Which fiduciary you're, you're doing, right? And how do you alleviate that for people? So I think it's it's not overcomplicating things, but but being cognizant and doing the right thing for people. And, and that's the only advice. And that's things I think everyone's doing, right? But like, we need to be part of the solution, right? We shouldn't be the problem. And I say this, you know, I was telling someone this a little while ago when, when COVID first hit is... You know, in 08, when the market crashed, right, financial services were part of the problem, right, or, or the core of the problem, right, in, in a lot of ways. And on this side, like, we need to be part of the solution. Like, we're, this, this is when people need advice. They need the right thing. They need, they need direction, right? And we all have a lot going on in our lives, and people are stressed and overworked. But let's make their life easier. Give them something that, that sets them up for the right future. And, and that as core is like, I think we should, how we should all live and behave. Right. And, and if we do that, you know, we're going to improve 
the the world that we started in, right? And and if we can all make it better, then then we did our job, right? We're not going to be perfect, right? No one is, but right. but let's let's create the, the framework and the stepping stones to, to to keep marching on that path. So I guess you know a long-winded way to say is like we, we just need to do the right thing. And not and not put the you can't put the burden on people, right? And, because people just they shouldn't have to worry about that. That's our job, right? And, and let's help change that. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. I was listening to a podcast this morning. I was taking my dogs for a walk. I was listening to a pro- podcast with the guy was Jason Freed, who is the CEO and founder of Basecamp. If you know who Basecamp is, and he's got yeah. all I don't these. Know, I know of, but he, yeah, he's he's a really bright guy. He's got uh, he's a very contrarian in the way that he thinks about business and whatnot. But he, he was they, they were asking that the host was asking him about kind of his their hiring practices, and they they do some. They're just different in the way that they hire folks. And he said, one of the things is that we we are committed to paying employees in the top 10% of what employees earn in San Francisco for comparable roles. He was just saying, like, we post on our, our job, our job postings, like what the salary is going to be. And the host was like, well, you know, do you ever get anybody to come back and negotiate? And he's like, no. He's like, because we put it out there and we pay people really, really well. And he said, you know, we don't believe that he's like, we want to get like the best people, but then we don't want to have to force them to be like the best negotiators, you know, for their own salary as well. We just want to pay them really well and and get them on board. And I, you know, it just what you said at the end there kind of like, you know, made me think about that is like, we can't put the burden back on everybody else. You know, at the end of the day, kind of the essence of the essence of what it means to be a fiduciary, whether you're contractually one or not, like, it's just a good way to live. It's a better way to live to kind of think about the interests and the needs of others and put those first. And if you do that, you know, it, it generally leads to, to good outcomes over yeah, time. I, it, it's, it's about doing the right thing. So I, this is an example, and maybe this will get me in trouble later. But, you know, we had a 5330 tax fund, right, for the, the loss gain tax that you have to provide back to the, the Department of Treasury is something plan sponsors have to do. Right. So this is this is you miss payroll, you miss an eligible employee, you do loss gain cal, you fund it, you get taxed on that amount. Myself, my CFO, general counsel, we spent a lot of time physically writing checks to the US Department of Treasury for like one cent and like three cents, like not even worth the paper. Right. right. And and it was one of those things, and, and it was funny because our compliance person, she's like, I'm not comfortable signing this. And I'm like, I will sign this and I will gladly sit in front of a judge and tell them why we're doing this on behalf of our clients. Because this is our problem. That we we as an industry created this problem and we have to fix it for our clients. Right. And and so, you know, a lot of time wasted, you know, in, in that regard. But but it we but we want to take the burden off of the sponsors, right? Like, hey, this is on us. Even if it was, you know, it's their fault because they missed the payroll, they missed the eligibility, but we're gonna fix this for them and help them and and do what's right. And then hopefully we can get the mindset of of of, of the legislative crew to say, listen, you shouldn't be doing this because this is keeping people out of the retirement industry, right? This is causing people not to offer employees 401ks because they're like, I don't want to deal with this. So, you know, that those are the things that, that kind of run through my mind and like what we're trying to solve and take that off of you. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective just in terms of, um, one, that sounds like the startup life right there, when, you know, <laughs> you, you got it. <laughs> but it, you know, the real battle and it, 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 it's becoming more challenging in the advisory industry because, you know, every, every advisor, whether they're a specialist or not, 
And I would say it's the same in the record keeping industry, right? It's whether or not it's true, everybody's saying the same thing. So if you've got a business owner, you've got a committee or a plan sponsor, and they're sitting and everybody's saying the same thing, like it's it's hard to differentiate. And then you know you don't know who's actually telling the truth or just telling a good story. And yeah. you, you can't really clients can't really know that until they've lived it. And you know, I would say one of the, the most important things, speaking on kind of the advisory, but even for record keepers, is at the end of the day, just keep your promises and do what you say you're going to do. And if you can be the if you can be the person or the team that when a client has an issue that they can turn to you and you can fix it for them and do 90 or 95% of the heavy lifting so that they can kind of focus on their business. It, it, these relationships, they're sticky. Like it's, it's, you know, I think about it as a business owner, we're 25 people now. And, you know, there are things that I used to do, you know, kind of operationally that now it's like, I don't have time to do that. Like if we have a good partner and they can take care of it, like that's what I'm hiring people for. Oh, you gotta, you scale it, right? Yeah, you're right. But it still comes down to the people. Like at the end of the day, you can automate so much, which is which is critical to create scale, which then frees you up to be available when actually people need a human. And I think that's the even with this whole kind of digital revolution. And I'm a techie guy. I love technology, but at the end of the day, like I think there is still how do you marry the digital with people who are knowledgeable. And then freeing those people up to focus on highest and best use activities for clients instead of, you know, writing three cent checks. Yeah, no, it's it's funny. One other little thing that I I challenge our team all the time with this and because we have, you know, a lot of us came from from this industry. Right. And, And oftentimes, you know, I've heard from the team like this is what every record keeper does. Or this is what what all record keepers do, and and I always like I never want to hear that come out of your right. mouth. I don't care what everyone's doing. I say, right. is this the right thing to do? Are we doing the best thing possible? Right, and and you know, and you have to you have to reset yourself. And there are you know inherent things you have to do. Right, legally we have to you know we're, obviously there's a lot of regulatory things we have to abide by. But are we doing it the right way? Right, uh, versus just what people have done. Because I'm like we're trying to we're resetting the bar like it's going to change. How do we change it and change it for the better? Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're a New York guy. My, my parents used to say to me all the time, you know, if your friend told you to jump off the Brooklyn bridge, would you do it? Like, (laughs) of course not, you know, but that is the, and that is the, the, you know, while I, you know, I, I very much appreciate, I think what you guys at Vest Well are trying to accomplish because you are pushing the industry forward. I think there's a lot of, it's easy to kind of get in the, I heard this quote from a owner of another RIA on a, a different podcast, but um, he called it the, the RIA hot tub, right? So a lot of RIAs, instead of like innovating and trying to kind of do things differently or do things better, a lot of times we like to just kind of sit in the hot tub and be like, hey, the water feels great. But I do appreciate what you guys are trying to advance and, and, and push forward in terms of like doing things different, doing things better. You know, at the end of the day, as an industry, we really need to start to step our game uh, we've got millions and millions and millions of people that are relying on us, as you said, to kind of do our jobs and do it well. I, I'm always amazed. I think it at just quite frankly, and I, 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 you know, not casting aspersions on anyone. I would say this collectively as an industry, like we have to be better than mediocre. And quite frankly, plant sponsors have to start demanding more of us as service providers. Like we need to raise, we need to raise, you know, raise up 
our game. And so I do appreciate very much what you guys are trying to do. It's, it's, it's hard to take on the big boys, you know, but, but, but you guys have a big vision and. I want to power the big boys. That's, <laughs> that's a, that, that's kind of our, 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 the long, the long-term vision of being that kind of Intel inside, yeah, if you will. Be the engine, you know, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a hard thing to build. We're not perfect like, like everyone else. Right. But, yeah. but I think we, we, we take it to heart and we're constantly just beating ourselves up. Like, how do we make this better? And like all of us, and I think like what you guys do at Green Spring, like you guys, you guys are rock stars, right? And, and you guys are changing uh, and servicing your clients at a level that that others don't get, right? But everyone should get it, right? Everyone should right. have that ability to get the service they 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 need, regardless of how big they are. If I'm a you know twenty person company and this is my first time offering four hundred one k, I I need help. Like someone's got to help me, right? Yeah. So. Well, I think that's that's kind of the virtuous aspect of what you guys, I think, are trying to do as well is, you know, we even see it. I think one of the failures of our industry, and there are things that are changing, there's no doubt about it, but is that, you know, really good access to really good financial advice and financial planning is been relegated in most in most cases on the private wealth side to people who have like the money to pay for it. And so as an industry, we've struggled to deliver comprehensive financial planning to the masses because especially around kind of this AUM model and if people don't have assets it's like hey you know I can't I can't work with you because you don't meet our minimums or you don't have enough money or whatnot and the reality is that's a small swath of like Americans and so you know in a lot of ways small plans because the economics to get paid in a lot of cases for service providers aren't there you know I think what you're trying to deliver right is a, a really un- underserved market is to deliver an experience that is available to mid and large size companies to businesses of any size. Yeah, no, exactly. That That's the goal. If we do that, we'll move the needle. Right. Uh, Absolutely. Right Absolutely. Well, hey, I really appreciate you spending your time with me on the Fiduciary You podcast. I think a uh, great discussion. I'm excited about what the future holds for Vestwell. And I think hopefully listeners have have gotten a lot out of it. I expect they will and keep up the great work. And thanks so much. Thank you. I really appreciate the time. This, this is a lot of fun. I appreciate it. I love the conversation. So thanks, John. Always good to talk. Thanks for listening to today's episode with Aaron Schum from Vestwell. I hope you enjoyed our discussion. You have a better understanding about how technology is reshaping the record-keeping industry, and it helped to make you a smarter ERISA fiduciary. If you'd like more information or you'd like to connect and learn more, go to fiduciaryu.com. I've got some great resources there for you, including each episode along with show notes, articles, free tools, and online courses. And if you've got questions you'd like me to answer, topics you'd like me to discuss, guests you think would be a good fit for the show, or any other feedback, I'd love to hear from you. Also, head over to Amazon and check out my two books, The Fiduciary Formula and Fixing the 401k. And if you want an easy way to support the show, I'd really appreciate you leaving a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help other people find the show, and I read each one. Until next time, thanks again for listening to the Fiduciary You Podcast. And now for some disclosures. Greenspring Advisors is a registered investment advisor. The opinions I express on this show are my own and do not reflect the opinions of my guests or the companies they work for. All statements and opinions expressed are based upon information considered reliable, although it should not be relied upon as such. 
Any statements or opinions are subject to change without notice. The information and content presented on the show is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Information expressed does not take into account your specific situation or objectives and is not intended as recommendations appropriate for any individual. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from a qualified tax, legal, or investment advisor to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. And past performance is not indicative of future performance.